from the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Caroline Kitchener, in for Martine Powers. It's Thursday, February 6th. Today, how the coronavirus is impacting the economy and why the virus is so hard to contain. And Bernie Madoff seeks early release from prison. The coronavirus has infected tens of thousands of people and killed more than 500, most of them in China. The outbreak of the coronavirus has had a huge impact across this country of 1.4 billion people. Not just in Wuhan and Hubei province, the epicenter of the outbreak, but everywhere. Anna Fifield is the Beijing bureau chief for The Post. Beijing, like you've never seen it before. In Beijing, a city of 24 million people. Empty streets with very little cars, bicycles or motorbikes. Restaurants, shops, cafes, everything is closed. Not one single person getting off the train. Nobody getting on. It's really kind of spooky to see how this huge city, which is usually completely packed with people, has turned into a ghost town almost overnight. As you can see, when we get up here, most, if not every single shop is closed. The biggest impact by far has been in domestic consumption. You know, the Lunar New Year holiday at the end of January this year is the single biggest holiday of the year for China. So at that time, usually 400 million people are on the move in China, taking a total of 3 billion trips. But everything has ground to a halt now. There are many factories across the country that remain closed. Many people have been told to work from home if they're office workers. Made even more difficult for parents because schools are entirely shut across the country. In terms of our Washington Post reporting from China, uh, my colleague Jerry Shi and I are both out and about uh in China at the moment, reporting. And as we go about our reporting, we are wearing face masks, we are wearing latex gloves to protect our hands. We are constantly, uh, you know, rubbing hand sanitizer in when we take them off. So we're taking a lot of precautions. Our movement around China is uh, restricted in some respects, though, in that Villages, towns have been quarantined off. There are curfews in place. So this is uh, what many places across China are doing. They are trying to prevent the virus from coming in. Anna Fifield is the Beijing bureau chief for The Post. The outbreak hit at an interesting time. It hit at the sort of the peak holiday, annual holiday season for the Chinese Lunar New Year. Typically at this time of year, everybody goes back to their ancestral village. They leave the big cities and go go back home. But a lot of the transport within China, the long-distance bus and rail service, has also been cut off. So there's sort of internal isolation that mirrors the international isolation. And that's going to have an unpredictable consequence on global supply chains. 
I'm David Lynch, and I'm the global economics correspondent. The government, as of the end of last week, has put a ban in place on people coming in from China. If you're a foreign national who's been in China in the last 14 days, which is the incubation period for the for the virus, you can't come into the United States. If you're a U.S. citizen who's been in China for that over that period of time, you can come back home, but you have to be in quarantine for 14 days to make sure you're not sick and in danger of spreading it. Now, American businesses have reacted to the epidemic by shutting down their operations over there, and that includes retail outlets for places like Starbucks and McDonald's and Apple stores, Kentucky Fried Chicken, and the factories, their Chinese suppliers are all shut down because they're under quarantine in most cases, and that'll be the case uh, into next week. Give me an idea of the sorts of industries or the sorts of companies even that might be most affected by, you know, the coronavirus throwing all of these factories into shutdown? Sure. From a from a global perspective and from an American perspective, the industries that are most dependent uh, on Chinese components are electronics, consumer electronics. Think about game consoles and smartphones and computers and laptops, the whole nine yards, and autos, all sorts of auto parts. Also pharmaceuticals, something like 80% of the raw materials that are used in the manufacture of generic drugs here in this country come from Chinese factories. So to have that interrupted is, you know, a potentially big deal for a lot of in, a lot of industries. Also, folks like General Electric manufacture in their own owned factories over there parts for CAT scans, oil field valves and motors. I mean, it's really sort of a limitless menu of industrial products that come from those Chinese factories. I know that Apple in particular is a company that you've written about. Can you give me a sense of just how much a company like Apple relies on its manufacturing base in China? Sure. Well, it's, it's not just manufacturing. It's both sides of the coin. It's the manufacturing inputs that are made by a company called Foxconn, which is a big Chinese company that produce all the innards that go into the Apple products that are so popular here. But China is now a huge consumer market, not just for Apple's products and consumer electronics, although Apple sold something like $44 billion worth of stuff in China last year, which is huge. Uh, but China is also now either the largest global market or close to the largest in things like movies, mm. uh, autos, passenger cars. So you interrupt that sort of normal operation, and you are really taking a chunk, a big chunk out of global growth from major household names uh, on Wall Street. So are we likely to just sort of one day wake up in this country and not be able to buy an iPhone because all the factories are shut down? Yeah, I think I think it would be premature to, to sort of leap to that conclusion. Most forecasts so far by the U.S. administration and uh, Wall Street economists have been fairly sanguine, maybe surprisingly so given the potential downside risks. But I think the expectation has been thus far that we'll see something like what we saw in 2003 with SARS, mm -hmm. an earlier epidemic, an earlier fatal virus that erupted quickly. Triggered a lot of panic, a lot of evacuations uh, of expats from China, and certainly 
damaged the domestic economy in a very immediate sense. Growth slumped, but then it bounced right back up in kind of a V-shaped recovery after about a quarter or two. And I think most economists expect something like that this time. The, the problem with those forecasts or the potential problem with the forecasts is they assume a future path for the disease. And by definition, this is the first time we've seen this particular virus, so we can't really be terribly certain what's going to happen. And number two, a lot has changed since 2003 in terms of China's role in the global economy. Uh, China's GDP, the size of its economy, four times larger than it was then. And it's now at the center of production in a way we've discussed for autos and electronics and industrial equipment and all sorts of stuff in a way that it was just beginning 17 years ago. So you, you put China on the sidelines of the global economy now and you've, you're taking out an engine that has been responsible in recent years for about one third of global growth. And that's a big deal. Are we already seeing any kind of response in the global markets to the coronavirus? Absolutely. Oil prices have fallen pretty noticeably below $50 for the first time in in, uh, in some time. And OPEC has now called a, a, an extraordinary meeting to try and figure out whether they're going to have to cut production since China is slowing so noticeably. Uh, you also see it in other commodity prices. Iron ore uh, had been plunging for days. Copper had been down 14 sessions in a row, I think. An index called the Baltic Dry Index, which is a measure of bulk shipping costs, so also tied into the commodities trade. That That's down about 50 percent so far this year. So you're already seeing those sorts of impacts where China as a buyer of inputs for its economy is now being taken offline. You know, in a, in a best case scenario, if if they get things under control and if you know, a lot of these plants are able to come online in less than a week, then this becomes a, a kind of bump in the road. But I think it's increasingly looking like a bigger rather than a smaller bump. David Lynch is the global economics correspondent for The Washington Post. As the spread of the coronavirus has brought life and business in China to a halt, the search to find a medical cure is moving at record speed. But it's still not as fast as the virus. I think what's most alarming to people who are experts in this is just they need to figure out as much as they can about this virus. How is it transmitted? When is it transmitted? Do people have symptoms when they begin to be able to spread it or not? There's just so many like basic things that they need to figure out. Carolyn Johnson is a science reporter for The Washington Post. One thing to really keep in mind is we haven't had deaths in the United States. There are other diseases such as the regular flu, which is a, a much bigger immediate threat to people here. So no one should be panicking, but, you know, paying attention and devoting a lot of energy to trying to figure out what this virus is exactly and how to, you know, stem the spread of it is, is really important. What is the process for scientists kind of getting all of the information that they need about this disease? What does that look like? How is that information shared? Most of the efforts kind of kicked into high gear in a Friday night in January when Chinese scientists shared on a genetic database online the genome of the virus. 
you know, it's kind of like a story about how like genetic tools have changed. So when SARS happened 20 years ago, a lot of the steps to understanding it took a lot longer just because the technologies weren't there. But now immediately scientists started going to companies that synthesize bits of DNA and were like, can you please manufacture the genome of this virus so we can study it in the lab? That takes a while. So there's steps, but they just all started working on the virus itself, given the data. They didn't have the virus in their hands, but they had basically like the blueprint of the virus. And you can get pretty far studying it that way. Right now, a lot of the labs that I've been talking to are still waiting to get a sample of the virus so they can start doing studies where they check whether existing drugs that we have for against viruses, such as some HIV drugs, some experimental drugs that were like developed for Ebola. It's kind of like, you know, how for the flu, you get Tamiflu. These wouldn't be preventive drugs necessarily. They would be ways to kind of treat the sickness. And so that's kind of one easy route. You take like all the drugs you have that are already approved or in development, you kind of like say, hmm, are they going to work against this? And if they do, that's really promising. So there are our drugs already. And I talked to some pharmaceutical companies that are like sending drugs that they have that have already been approved to China because the hospitals there are going to do like trials to see, do these drugs help with this infection? It's kind of like science in the field in real time because there's such need. So that's one area where they're working. And then others are already working on developing a vaccine. You can do that using the viral genome information. And so there are vaccines already being made right now, but there's kind of a long period of testing that needs to go on to make sure they aren't harmful that they work, that they like pass all the kind of in-lab and in-animal testing tests that suggest that they're going to work. So in a lot of cases, like there is vaccine already being made for this virus, but there's going to be a lag time where they have to like make sure this vaccine works, that it's safe, et cetera. And are these scientists all over the world looking at this? Oh, yeah. Every country is basically thinking about how can we develop a vaccine. So that is also part of the parallel thing. You know, like we we in many ways don't really care who develops it. We want good drugs and vaccines and having so many different teams with different expertise looking at different ways to stop it or to create drugs against it. That's that's part of, you know, how it all works and they're all kind of sharing with each other in a way that is pretty new just kind of culturally for science uh, as well as just empowered by all these new platforms they have to share information and to help one another out and kind of say what they're seeing. That means they can cooperate instead of just competing to be first. It's really surprising, honestly, to me to hear about how collaborative the process is because I could imagine this getting quite competitive between scientists and, frankly, between countries who all want to be the first to kind of vanquish this thing. But that's really not how it's playing out, right? Yeah, everyone has the same goal. Everyone's trying a different method or whatever. And they all think, you know, ours is better. But, like, I don't think, uh, and they would love to see theirs succeed. But there has been kind of openness. And I do mean openness on this biological side. I know there's been some worry that like some of the information about cases and kind of the population spread hasn't come as quickly as people wanted. 
But I do think people believe that on this kind of basic biological kind of level, we're seeing a lot of openness and transparency. Carolyn Johnson is a science reporter for The Washington Post. And now, one more thing. You know, I've been in prison for 11 years. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, my, my health has deteriorated significantly. Because I have uh, stage 5 kidney disease. And I'm uh, on dialysis. Bernie Madoff is probably the, you know, most well-known Ponzi scam artist in modern American history and possibly ever. Justin George is a reporter for The Washington Post. He's had kidney disease for a while. His kidneys have been failing. And they have recently have reached sort of stage five. He's 81 years old and he's too old for a transplant. So his days, he said, are numbered. If I, I, I would fall down if I get up. Because one of my problems is I'm dizzy all the time. Bernie did not want to be seen in person. So he, we spoke over the phone, and the only time we could was whenever he called. And we would get 15 minutes on the federal prison line, which is often interrupted by this sort of canned message that says, Justin wanted to talk to Bernie Madoff because Madoff is trying to get out of prison. You know, and I, you know, live quite frankly with the guilt from the mistakes that I made. Compassionate release is basically sort of a medical parole system. It was created in 1984. And what Congress intended to do there was basically to try to give some prisoners who might be terminal or might have a medical condition an ethical, more humane sort of treatment. And that might be outside the prison system. Uh, I was, you know, hoping for some sort of compassionate release. And I was hoping to get treatment uh, at a hospital you know, I was not in prison. Very few inmates have gotten compassionate release since the law was created. But the First Step Act, the prison reform law passed in 2018, has now made it possible for prisoners to appeal these decisions. That's what Bernie Madoff is trying to do. And what the First Step Act did was allowed for prisoners who were denied compassionate release when they applied to take that request, or that denial to a federal judge and let the judge decide whether they deserve it or not. Justin says that if approved, Bernie Madoff's appeal could set the precedent for a more lenient standard. This is a test case for compassionate release. And basically, you can say that how compassionate are we as a society? And, um, you know, essentially, what is the capacity of the federal criminal justice system? What is the capacity for compassion? Because you're taking basically a person who committed an unprecedented crime, a criminal who has the most victims that's ever come before, asking for compassionate release. But then again, if this does pass or whatever, it's going to basically push the limit of compassionate release also. Justin George is a reporter for The Post.
That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Caroline Kitchener. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.